It is very good to be with you. Uh, the first Sunday as your, uh, your as your senior pastor, and I'm very privileged to be here. It's good for us to be in town again. We're here till tomorrow. We have a flight that leaves out tomorrow. But thank you so much again for your hospitality, your kindness towards us, your grace to us, and we are so thankful. Uh, for what this church has done in our lives, and we are very much looking forward to getting up here full-time. Uh, Natalie and I both are very excited about the uh, proposition of transitioning up here and just the, uh, the, the firm belief that we have that we know that God has been behind this whole thing from the beginning. Uh, even Tommy gave us a, a testimony of that the other day and just how firm and clear it has been that God has, has been driving us to uh, this point, and so we are thankful uh, for, for the God's clear direction. I hope you are still in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at those verses that uh, Brother Nathan read, um, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. When you think about the Bible, I'm sure you think that there's certain chapters that stand out um, perhaps more than others. For me, perhaps uh, one of them is John 3 or uh, one of them, another chapter that stands out as sort of a pillar is Luke 15. Or perhaps Romans chapter 8 is one that stands out as sort of a gem, one that we can really fall back on in a lot of times of life. Perhaps Psalm 23 or Psalm 51 even. But for me also, Ephesians chapter 2 is for me a pillar of the scriptures. To me, these, especially these first 10 verses, uh, describe for us what I like to call God's colossal gospel. And in fact, that's my sort of message for this morning, the colossal gospel of God. And I use that word specifically because one definition of the word colossal is so great in size or force or extent as to elicit awe. And I can think of no better word to describe the verses that were read for us and the verses that we are going to go through. These verses really truly are God's great gospel to us. I think these 10 verses are some of the most important verses in the Bible, and they are some that we should uh, definitely commit to further memory. As you know, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and through the Holy Spirit, Paul is really trying to drive out some false beliefs that had crept into this church at Ephesus during his time there. And he's relaying here in these verses this grand picture of God's salvation. Paul first passed through the city of Ephesus around the year A.D. 52 on his second missionary journey. He then later spent about two and a half years really dedicating himself to this church in the years 52 through 56, just uh, in focused preaching and teaching and ministering to them in his doctrine, in the doctrine of God. And then he later would then write this letter in about the year A.D. 60 to 61. So he's writing this letter because he knows and he hears of some things that have crept into this church that he wishes to correct. Ephesians, like Colossians, you might want to know, is what they call a circular letter. That means it's a letter that was passed around two different churches. Yes, when Paul is writing here to the church at Ephesus, he's writing specifically to them with things that they would uh, want to know and things that were relevant to them. But it was also a letter that was passed around to many different churches which they would be read uh, then publicly in public worship services. And I think it's interesting to note that because there's similar themes in Colossians and Ephesians, but also 
It's a circulator in that we are reading it today, some 2,000 years later, and it's still just as relevant, just as important, just as significant for us to read this letter and take its truths that we find in it to heart. And so, therefore, in these couple verses here, I want to do some investigative journalism, let's say. Just kind of ask some questions, the, the who and the what and the when, the where, the why and the how of these verses and kind of get this grand picture of God's salvation further in our minds. So firstly, quickly, in verses 1 through 3, I think we have to ask the question, who does God save? In this picture of salvation, who does God save? Who does God rescue? Who does God go after? And I think the answer is a surprising answer. I think it's a very unexpected answer. Because look very quickly. 1 through 3. Paul writes, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This is the picture that Paul is painting of who God saves. It's people who are dead in trespasses and sins, those who are, as he says, are, are, that are walking according to the course of this world. Their lifestyle is of the world's. It's those who are called both the children of disobedience and the children of wrath. He doesn't paint a pretty picture of who God saves, but it's the exact picture of us, right? In short, we could summarize these verses in saying that God goes after sinners. And sinners are all that there are. <laughs> so we can glory in the fact that God goes after us. That In this question of who God saves... We can answer, he goes after me. He chases after me. I am perfectly described here. Actually, I think in these three verses, we have the perfect description of everyone who has ever lived on this, on this planet. It describes all of us, everyone here this morning and everyone who has ever existed on this planet we call Earth. This was you. This was me. That's why he testifies in verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation in this manner. Among whom also we all lived this way. He says the same thing in Second, or I think it's in Corinthians, where he says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Maybe perhaps some of you are still in that state. Before Jesus, you were his enemy. You were at enmity, Paul says elsewhere, with God. You were at odds with him. There was a confliction between you and him. You were dead in sin. You were a breaker of his righteous and holy law. And there was nothing about you that was good. There was nothing about you that was holy. It was only sinful and selfish and self-pleasing and self-committed and self-focused. This is the picture that Paul paints of who God saves Again, maybe this is still you here this morning. You don't know Jesus as your Savior. You are still in jeopardy then. Paul is saying that he's trying to get your attention here, I think, of these verses. And he's saying that you're not just sick. 
He's trying to get your attention to see that sin is not just an illness. Actually, sin is death. And if it's not an illness, you don't just need medicine. You need resuscitation. In fact, we might even say you need resurrection. That's what he's saying here. You, your problem is a lot worse than you think it is. It's not just that you're ill and you can just put a Band-Aid on it. You need new life. It's something that you can't accomplish on your own. You are so such in a state of sin that you need outside intervention. You need something from the outside. You can't have a magic pill or a silver bullet or any activity can come and cure you because your sickness, actually your sickness is fatal and you are dead in trespasses and sins. But praise be to God that he is the one who resurrected because he can give that power of resurrection to you. And in fact, that's what we see in verses four through six. Because not only who does God save, and we see that very putrid picture of ourselves, but also our second question, what did God do? Well, let's look at verses four through six again. But God, those two great glorious words, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what does he do with these sinners? What does God do with these enemies? Again, he does something unexpected. He doesn't throw them away and try and start over again. He comes and shows mercy on them by making them alive through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means there when it says, hath quickened us together. Quickened means make alive. You can see the contrasting uh, elements that Paul is using here to describe salvation from those who were dead in sin. It is now in Christ that we have life and that we are made alive. You are quickened in Christ. And despite all our rebellion, despite all of our enmity against God, he still intervenes. That's, where I, that's why I love those two words. But God. We were, uh, at, uh, we were enemies of God. We were rebelling against him. We were deserving of all the condemnation in the world. But for this God who is rich in mercy. He has quickened us. He has made us alive. He has raised us in Christ again in verse 6. He has given us the full measure of his righteousness. That's really, I think that's what it's getting at. And also in verse 6 again, he has seated us with Christ. I love the picture that he paints here. It's sort of like he's giving us all of the blessings and all of the benefits of Christ himself. He is conferring all of them to us. I, I remember that picture actually from Luke 15 where the prodigal son returns home. And the father doesn't just take him back into his house and secure him again. No, remember that scene where he gives him a ring and he gives him a robe and he gives him sandals. And then he has this large feast to celebrate the returning of this prodigal son. He's making sure that everyone knows that this son who was gone is now returned. And he has come back and he has been given all the full measure of being my son. Such is what we receive in the gospel of God's salvation. 
All the full measure of Christ's holiness is bestowed to us. All of the benefits of the Son are conferred unto his brothers and sisters that he has redeemed, which is us. We are given all the full benefits of being God's sons and daughters, which is an amazing picture that the enemies of God are made into his family. That's what, what is such a, an amazing delight of this salvation. Because this salvation is actually adoption. It's resurrection and then adoption. We are resurrected to new life. And then we are brought into the family of God. Given all of the benefits of being his sons and daughters. And such is this place. The church then. A church of God then is an orphanage. <laughs> It's an orphanage of rescued sinners who are now delighting in their father because they've been rescued by their brother, Christ. Every delight the father has for the son is given to you at once upon your faith in him. What, that's an astounding thought, isn't it? That all of the favor that God has for his son is given to you because of your faith, at once at your faith. And actually, verses 1 through 7 in the Greek is actually one continuous sentence. Paul was, <laughs> he is noted for his literary prowess, not just because he's a writer of scripture, but because he is an excellent writer in his own regard. And he was one, I guess, for run-on sentences, because in the Greek, this is one long sentence, one long continuous thought and so therefore, we can go back to grammar school and bring out another point, which is notice who is doing all the action in this long verse. It's God who is quickening us. It says, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ, and he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, God, is the one who is doing all the action in these verses. He is the subject. He is the actor in this sentence. <laughs> we, then, are the direct objects, you might say. We receive the action. It's because of Christ's action for us that we are then receiving this action of salvation. And therefore, we have to gloriously rejoice in the fact that Christ himself is the author and the agent and the advocate of our salvation. He is the one doing all the action. And therefore, we have to see also what Paul is just, just hinting at in verse 5. Where he says at the end, that parenthetical statement, by grace ye are saved. He's again pointing to the fact that this salvation that we enjoy is not a human achievement. Again, you were dead in sins. The dead cannot raise themselves. They need outside intervention. So it's by grace that you have been saved. This is not a human achievement. This is not something that you can accomplish. This is something that's conferred by grace. But we have to also ask, not just... Uh, who, who does God save and not just what does God do, but also our third question is when did God do this? Again, we're going to notice verses 4 and 5, but when is this plan of a salvation established? Or we also have to say, uh, do we have to do something in order for this salvation to be accomplished? Do, do we have to change in some way? Well, look again. 
But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. <laughs> Do we have to change? No. Do we have to raise ourselves up again? No, we're dead. We can't. <laughs> we're dead. He says, no, he has made a way to resurrect you even when you were dead. Even while you were an enemy of God, it harkens back to elsewhere where he would write in Romans chapter 5, that even while you were enemies with God, he himself was crucified for you so that he could reconcile you to himself. And that's what is so glorious about this colossal gospel of God, that even while we were his enemies, he was making a way to redeem us and bring us back home again. Even when we were dead, he was making a way to make us alive. And that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that the worst sorts of people get the best news possible, is that while we weren't seeking after him, he was seeking after us. Even while we were enemies with God, he was dying and loving us. God's love, therefore, doesn't depend on us. Because if it did, we would all, be, uh, we would all receive really bad news. <laughs> we were enemies with God. It doesn't depend on us making ourselves his friends. His love is not dependent on something that he sees in us. It's part of his character. That's where we get that glorious, well, let me turn there to 1 John chapter 4. And we get that glorious testimony from uh, this apostle, the apostle John, the one who is described as the one whom Jesus loved. In verses 8 and 9 of 1 John 4 where it says, He, hath, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. So love is not something that God sees in us and then he loves us. Love is part of his character. It's who he is. God is love. And how do we know this? Because he sent his son to die for us. It's, he doesn't say there. It was manifested the love of God toward us because we changed, because we got better, because we raised ourselves up and we started following the law. It says we know that God is love because he sent his only son to die for us. We know that God is love because even while we were still sinners, Christ was loving and dying and bleeding for us on that cross. This is... Just the amazing, the astounding fact of this gospel is the fact that before we even ask for a plan of salvation, it is there from eternity because it's in the heart of God. And in fact, in Ephesians, if you're back there, Ephesians 1 verse 4, it really says that before the foundation of the world, it says in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, according as he hath chosen us, chosen us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Before the worlds were created, he was planning a way for you to be redeemed. He was planning a way for you to be made alive and be made holy. Not because of some holiness within yourself, but because he was planning a way to give you his holiness. Before you were born 
God paid for your sins by his own blood. He was dying on that tree and he was paying for your rebellion. But, and that's where we have to get to our fourth question. And that is, where did God do this? If God is making this way for sinners to be saved, where did this way come about? Where did God do this? Where is this salvation secured? Again, it's in an unexpected place. Look at verses 5 through 7 of Ephesians 2 again. That in the ages to come, or excuse me, that's verse 7, <laughs> excuse me, verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You see those phrases there really quickly. He says he has quickened us with Christ. He has made us sit together in Christ. And he has shown us kindness through Christ. Very clearly Paul is getting their attention to go back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's getting their minds to go back to that place where Jesus Christ was crucified for us. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read uh, two verses there really quickly. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, he says this. Paul, writing to the Romans, says, For if, when we were enemies with God, again, we were at enmity with God, we were rebels, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the atonement. He's getting our minds to go back to that place where Christ died for us. That place called Golgotha. That place which is also called the place of the skull. And that's where we get to that unexpectedness of this place of our salvation. Because the place of the skull is the place of our salvation. The place where Jesus laid down his life is the place where ours is raised up. The place where he was punished is the place where we find our freedom. You see how uh, uncanny and colossal well, this good news is. That the place where Jesus uh, met death is the place where he conquered it. So that we might through him be also conquerors. As, as Paul writes there in Romans that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's because he has conquered death for us. This is where God establishes our salvation. In the heart of himself on that cross. And that's that beautiful thought. That even as Jesus was breathing his last. He was thinking of you. Even as he was receiving all the taunts of the crowd to save himself, to come down, to call on legions of angels because he is so powerful and mighty. He says, God, they do not know what they do. Forgive them. <laughs> he was forgiving the crowd that was crucifying him. <laughs> he was forgiving the crowd that was mocking him, saying, you are king of the Jews. Call down and be saved yourself. And he says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Even as the nails were piercing his flesh and the blood was streaming from his head and his side, he was thinking of the forgiveness that he was establishing. He was thinking of the salvation that he was tendering. 
Christ Jesus wasn't just dying for the world. Yes, he was, but he was taking names to the cross. When he was dying on that cross, he was thinking about Bradley's rebellion. He was thinking about my sin. He was thinking about my uh, wickedness. And he was dying for it. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus was thinking of you and paying for your sin in full. He was healing you from all of your transgressions. That's that great prophet says in Isaiah 53, that by his stripes we are healed. He's redeeming us by his accomplishment on that tree, the tree that we deserved. And that should just be astounding to us, and it should lead actually to our next question, question number five. Why did God do this? If God was so holy and so magnificent, and why, if he was creator over all things, why didn't he just start over again? Why make up this whole plan of salvation anyways? Why determine to save these sinners, these enemies, these rebels? Why not just burn us up and start over again? Again, we have an unexpected answer because look at back in Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verses 7 and then look at verse 10. It says, Paul writes, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see what he's doing? He's showcasing both the amazing importance of his holiness and the amazingness of his grace. He's saying that his holiness is so important that he's going to give you his holiness at the price of his son's blood. He is showing us far more about himself because he is saving sinners, people who don't deserve salvation. He is giving it to them scot-free. He's trying to get you to see that he's, he's trying to show you more of his blessed character than we could ever have learned in any other way. In fact, let me read you a passage. This is from one of my favorite authors. He was a Scottish reformer back in the 1800s. His name was Horatius Bonar. You may be familiar with some of his hymns. But he writes this, which I think is so uh, astute. He says, A world that is unfallen reveals but half of God. The deep recesses of God's character only come out in connection with a world that is fallen. To learn what holiness is and how holy God is, we need not merely to see his feelings toward the holy, but towards the unholy. God's purpose is to make himself more known to you, a sinner, than was made known to Adam in his sinlessness. He's trying to get you to see, I want you to know more of who I am. And it's not that sin is good. It's not that sin is a good thing. And in fact, Paul says that elsewhere in Romans 5, where he says, at the end of Romans 5, where he says, grace abounds all the more over sin. And then he, he, he assumes their question. In Romans 6, he says, but don't mistake me for thinking that we should just go on sinning, that grace may abound. That's not what he's saying. It's not that sin is good. And in fact, it just exposes the extent to which God is good. That's why there's this great Latin phrase called Felix culpa. Have you heard of this phrase? It actually means, oh, happy fault. 
There's a great song in the liturgies of some of the other churches that they have this song called, Oh Happy Fault or, uh, or Felix Culpa. And really it's hearkening back to the paradox of the fall back in Genesis chapter 3, right? We have this great fall uh, where we have fallen from God's grace and God's goodness and God's blessing. But it's through that unfortunate event that we have the fortunate good news of God's redemption and resurrection. And that's why we can, have, we can say, oh, happy fall. Not because it's good that we have fallen, but it's because we can see more of God, good, God's goodness in our fallenness. And that's, I think, what he's saying here, that it is not good that we go on sinning, but it is good to know that God's grace is there even when we do, because you will. It shows off the depth of his person. I think that's what Paul is getting after here, that he's through all the ages to come, he's showing off the depths of his kindness. He says the riches, the exceeding riches of his grace in Christ Jesus is showing off this gracious character of the Godhead. He's made this way of salvation also so that you might be a masterpiece of his grace. That's what that word workmanship there means. He's working on you. He is chiseling you. He is making you into what he wants. And through all the ages, he is doing it through his kindness, through his mercy, through a returning look to that place of death, but that place that is also of life, which is the cross. His grace to you is something that I think even the angels are marveling at. Actually, look at verse, uh, go with me really quickly. I think I have time for this. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, because there's this great thought that Peter picks up on in here in this letter. We are asking, why did God do this? Why did God make this way of salvation by grace through faith? It's because he's wanting more of his glorious character to be known unto you. And in fact, it's a part of his character that the angels, Paul Peter says, long to look into. Look at verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Angels have never experienced the grace of God. They have been forever in the goodness of God's glory. It is us who have experienced grace, who have experienced the fact of God himself substituting himself for us. It's a marvel, something that even God's angels are curious about, are inquisitive of, because it is something that is so unexpected. We might even say it is a colossal thing. It is the good news of God that God himself has stood in our place And that's our sixth question we have to answer. How did God do this? Back in Ephesians 2, quickly. 
How did God do this? How did God establish this salvation? How do we get this salvation? The answer to me to this question, I think, is fundamental to the rest of your faith. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All of salvation, this glorious uh, resurrection from death to life, this glorious uh, adoption as we have brought into the family of God, it is all by grace. For by grace ye are saved. We saw earlier that God was the subject, he was the actor, he was the one doing all the action. It is here that he's reaffirming that fact that it is not your works. It is not by your merit, it is not your blood, sweat, and tears that this has been established. In fact, we could say it is by the blood, sweat, and tears of another. It is by grace ye are saved, and that not of yourself is the gift of God. This salvation, this glorious bringing into new life in a new family is made complete and is made possible by the one who stood in your place and the one who stood and hung on your cross. Here again, Paul is dismantling this notion that you have anything to do with your salvation except providing the sin that makes it necessary. Actually, I think that's from one of the reformers. I don't know which or else I'd give him credit, but they asserted that fact that we have nothing to do with the salvation of the gospel except provide the sin that makes it necessary. That gives us really nothing to boast in. And that's what Paul is saying. It's all of a gift. You have nothing to boast. This isn't something where you can say, look at what I have done. Look at all the fasting that I have accomplished. Look at all of the charities that I have given to. Look at all the verses that I have memorized. God is rewarding me for that uh, stellar faith. (laughs) Saying, no, that's not how it works. It is by grace you are saved through faith. That not of your works, lest anyone should boast. The word of God alone announces we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, so that we may, in verse 10, live for the glory of God alone. This is the gospel. There are no add-ons to that. There are no fine print terms and conditions to that gospel. I I love those car commercials, right, where they say, I, I think some cars are more notorious for this than others. Namely, well, I won't name them, but (laughs) there's some who will announce, right? You just bring whatever old ratty, junky car, and we'll give you a brand new one for free. And then at the end of the commercial, there's all those terms and conditions, and they have some auctioneer guy that reads it at a million miles an hour. So you have no idea what those conditions are. And then when you go into the dealership, they say, oh, no, there's some other thing you have to meet. There's some caveat that you don't meet, so you don't get this free gift. God's grace isn't like that. There's no conditions. There's no fine print where he says at the end, you just got to meet this thing. You just got to do this special work. There's no fine print. It's by grace you are saved through faith. This is God's colossal gospel, I think. 
It flies in the face of our modern philosophies, which wants us to boast in ourselves. It dismantles our religious egos, which try and save ourselves. You cannot save yourself. You cannot raise yourself or make peace with God yourself. No amount of working, no amount of striving or spiritual activity or moralism or good behavior fulfills the works of the law. Only Christ himself has done that. Only one thing has bridged the gap between God and sinners, and that is the cross of Christ. Which is why Paul says, let me read this, actually you can just read it right there in Galatians 6 verse 14, where he says, But God forbid that I should glory, but God forbid that I should boast... Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. We don't boast at all except for one thing in the cross of Christ. If we boast, we boast in that. If we glory, we glory in that. Boasting is trying to take credit for something that you've been given. <laughs> That's like at Christmas time. You know, where you get, I, I love Christmas time. And we know that Christmas isn't about the gifts and all that kinds of things, but we do the gifts for a specific reason. We're giving it out of love. We're giving it to show this other person that you haven't done anything necessarily to earn this gift, but we're giving it to you because we love you. That's where the, the philosophy of Santa Claus falls apart because we don't believe in that. We give gifts because we do it out of the kindness of our hearts. But what, what would happen if one of your kids tried to earn that gift? It would taint the nature of the giving, right? If you gave them exactly what they asked for, you know, in their Christmas list, and they were, let me do something to earn it. Let me try and wash all the dishes, and that would be nice. Or let me take out the garbage, that would be great. But that's not why I'm giving it to you. I'm not doing it because of that. I'm doing it because I love you. Amen. And you see, the same is with God. When you try and take credit and boast in something that he's given you, I don't do it because you have done it. Something for me, God is saying, I do it because I am love. God's colossal gospel gives us the only thing that matters. That is the righteousness of God. It tells us of the fact that the criminals are made free by Jesus becoming the criminal for us. And in fact, let me read you this glorious verse that I haven't been able to escape. And I just want to read it to you because I think it's amazing. It's Isaiah 53. That glorious chapter of God's, of Jesus Christ's passion and death. And verse 12 is one that I have not been able to escape. Isaiah 53.12 says this. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And this phrase right here, and he was numbered among the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Christ himself was numbered as a transgressor for us. The transgressors. He didn't count it all glory. Uh, he didn't count it anything against himself to be numbered among the wicked, to be numbered among the sin. In that verse in 2 Corinthians 5 where it says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 
again, that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is a glorious picture of God's gospel of salvation. Something that he does in us. So I'll leave you with two things. First of all, to the Christian here in this room, those who are a part of this family of God, remember that it is finished. Your salvation was purchased before you alive. You didn't win it. You didn't earn it. So therefore, you can't lose it. Boast not in yourself, but boast in the cross. To the non-Christian, I urge you this morning to repent. The God of the universe has bought your salvation with his own blood. He hasn't called you to climb some uh, insurmountable heights of religion and piety. He has called you to fall at his feet and just by faith declared, be merciful to me, a sinner. Your salvation, if you do not know Jesus here this morning, your salvation is eternally secure in that person, Jesus Christ. And that gift is waiting. You don't have to accomplish something to merit it. It's there waiting for you. So I urge you this morning, don't leave it unopened. Come to grace. Come be a part of this family of faith. Let us pray.